This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. Welcome to episode 8 of the Paltrowcast. This episode features three interviews, highlights of the chats that I had with comedian Greg Barrett, singer-songwriter Greg Holden, and the legendary Dee Snyder. First up are highlights from my chat with Greg Holden. First, I want to ask you about how the connection to Butch Walker first happened. My initial connection with Butch uh, was through my my old record label, Warner Brothers, because the president of Warner Brothers at the time uh, thought me and Butch would get along really well and maybe make some cool music together. So he set up a lunch with us, and uh, we met up in Santa Monica and just hit it off as human beings and friends ever since. Um, but we made some music together uh, briefly in the beginning of last year. Um, and unfortunately, I got dropped by Warner Brothers, so the record never happened, but uh, I'm sure it will one day. Did any of the songs that you wrote uh, for Warner Brothers, uh, is any of that going to wind up with BMG, or are those songs kind of in lockdown? Um, no, I, On the Run was one of the songs that Butch and I did in, in that period of time. When you were uh, set up with Butch, was it the typical A&R limbo of, hey, you need a single and this guy's going to help you write a single? No, I wrote On the Run by myself, actually. And uh, Butch and I wrote another song together. Um, and we, no, Butch, Butch was never forceful in that, in writing. And actually, thankfully, nor was Warner Brothers uh, at the time. I think ultimately they probably were looking for a hit single, which obviously I didn't give them because that's why I'm not on them anymore. I, I'm, I'm so like uh, stubborn and passionate and... Uh, will not be pushed around like that by labels. So I'm not really worried that anybody would have ever put me in that situation, honestly. But, you know, ultimately I got dropped. So <laughs> my own, it's my own problem. Well, I remember first hearing about you six or seven years ago uh, when Cobalt or other publishers are trying to set you up. Um, did a lot of your early career have to do with you writing the American Idol, you know, hit song and people trying to capitalize off of that? Yeah, I would say a little bit. I mean, I I was never writing for other artists. Even when I wrote Home, I was never writing for other artists. It just sort of happened. And I had no intention of writing for other artists. But when you write a song that sells that many copies and it's, it's so big, you can't help but have your publishers sort of start trying to capitalize on it for sure. And I, I don't blame, blame them for it. And I did it for a couple of years, but I didn't, if I'm completely honest, I don't. I don't really enjoy it. I have uh, too much to say on my own. I'm not really uh, not really into writing songs for other people that much. So what was it that made you want to move I to wish the... I did. <laughs> Well, what made you want to move to the United States in the first place? Well, I was just like a huge Dylan fan, a huge Springsteen fan, and all this sort of artists that inspired me when I was first getting started in music all lived in New York. They were all singing about New York, and I was I just became so fascinated and obsessed with it. I, even though I'd never been there, so when it sort of came to time, came to the time of quitting my job and deciding I'm going to try and do music, I, I I figured the best place to start was New York. So I just quit. I quit my job in London, sold all my shit, and just moved moved to New York City. It was a little bit of an insane move, but I was 25 at the time, and I was a bit. I was feeling pretty ballsy, so just you know, I just did it. 
I have no regrets. How do you feel that New York and London compare to one another? From my experience, they're very, very similar as Tokyo is as well, those big cities. But were there any things beyond, you know, you living in a different country that you really had to get used to in being a musician in a new city like that? I don't know. I sort of fell into a pretty good scene really quickly in New York, which I hadn't been able to do in London. So I was quite fortunate in that sense that I had a community of people already and I had a venue that I could regularly play and people would come and see me. So it was, it was different. It was different. And I also just felt more inspired in a different continent in New York. You know, I, I'm from England. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't find London insp- inspiring. Whereas being in New York, it, it is very different from London, I, I think. And uh, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I, it was a, it was a better, better match for me. You mentioned that Bob Dylan was a big influence in you choosing New York of all places. But were there other cities besides New York that piqued your interest in the states? None at all. And you know that's changed now that I've seen America because at that time I'd never even been in been in the states at all. So I only really had like tunnel vision towards New York. But now I'm a huge fan of San Francisco. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Portland. Chicago. I mean, I live in LA. I love Nashville. I mean, I've, I've, I've been around a little bit now, but to me, I still think New York is the best city in the world. <laughs> so what do the next six months look like for you? And I ask that because you've taken a very different and unique approach in releasing singles rather than, you know, just l- unloading an album. Yeah. And that, that was a, con- that was a conscious decision. It was a tactical decision because I think we're living in a time at the moment where people are consuming so much music and gangs and uh, from all different angles and uh it's just, it's it's a lot of work to make an album a lot of work a lot of money a lot of pressure um and i felt that it would be nice to release a song every few months and see how people were reacting to you know each song and i could sort of gauge the market a little bit better honestly so i've got my third one coming out in september i think or maybe october and then with a with a full length coming before the end of the year, but I wanted to just sort of see how it would work, just putting song out after song. And it's been it's been an interesting experience because I I think that things with Spotify and playlists and stuff, it's it's it is much more of a single driven market right now. But it's uh, it's also it's really difficult to stand out, so it's quite hard to tell if it, if, if my plan worked. <laughs> Well, is your whole album recorded or is most of it recorded at this point? It's, I would say 90% of it's recorded. I mean, it's, it's also songs that I've been doing this year, uh, doing this year by myself at home. So, you know, the problem is that I'm, I'm in control of it and I'm a, I'm a huge procrastinator. So if someone else was producing this record, it would have been finished months ago. The problem is I'm doing it. So I'm getting in my own way as usual. And, uh, I'm just taking my sweet ass time. Is uh, the whole but thankfully I have BMG and my management breathing down my neck, so I, you know, I have to get my shit together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is your whole album being done with Butch and his musicians, or is that just the first few songs? That was just that was just on the run. The rest of it is just me at home. So that means that you played all the instruments or most of the instruments on the other tracks? So far, yeah. I don't recall you doing that on previous efforts. Am I wrong about that? No, I, previous efforts uh, I made with producers and had great musicians, and I was very blessed uh, to have the finances to do that. Nowadays, it's just so difficult to see money coming in from music that it, I, I didn't see the point in going and spending 50, 60 grand making an album um, when I have all this equipment at home. I have a home studio and I wanted to challenge myself to produce it myself. I can produce and I always have. I just never had the balls to do it and release it. Um, this time around, after being dropped by Warner Brothers, I was like, you know what, now's the time. 
now it's time to put out self-produced music. It's just the logical next step to me. Having, you know, survived the major label world and found your way to, to BMG, what do you wish more people knew about your journey at this point? You know, the simple way of saying is, you know, guy writes big hit song, guy gets big deal, guy leaves. But do you feel that there's a lot more t- to the story than that? I mean, I think everybody has a, a long and complicated story. I wouldn't say that I was, I'm definitely not unique in the sense that it's been a, a up and down journey. I think that what, what would I want people to know? I mean, it's very easy to get in your in your own way. For me, anyway, I, I, I suffer from a lot of insecurity and anxiety about my career and my songs and my producing and my touring and and I've definitely managed to do a great job of getting in my my own getting in the way of my own success. On top of that, is it's getting harder and harder to make money from doing to do this. So touring touring is if you want to tour with a band, you're basically going to lose thousands and thousands of dollars. And if you if you tour on your own, it's very hard to put on the show that you would like to put on. You know, like I feel quite limited in the sense that if I want to remain in the black, I have to go out and play solo acoustic. But if I want to put on the show that I really want to put on with the lights and the sound and the full band and everything, I have to get ready to hemorrhage money, which, you know, I, I wish I could afford to just hemorrhage money all day long, but I, uh, I can't. So I think that a lot of people don't realize how expensive it is to go out on the road with a band. So is ultimately the goal to be able to go out and, you know, have that full band and have that full production? Or is there a bigger thing that yeah. you're working towards? No, I mean, that's always been my goal. My goal is to be able to go out on the road around the world and play big shows with my band, you know, it's with the exact sort of show that I want to put on. Everything is evolving. Everything. My career has never been straightforward, and you know my goal keeps changing. And right now, I, I'm just happy to be able to sustain a career in songwriting and and, and recording. So, uh, I guess in closing, any last words for the kids? <laughs> the kids? I don't know. The kids are listening to Greg Holden, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I would say keep stay positive in in a in a world that is pretty pretty crazy right now, and listen to music that you care about. I don't know. That's really it. Next up are highlights from my chat with the legendary singer D. Snyder. Whether you know him from Twisted Sister or as a radio personality, the key is he has a great new solo album called For the Love of Metal, which you have to check out. I was a listener of Snyder Words, and it's great to see you're getting back into the podcast game. Uh, what exactly caused that to happen? I guess it was uh, two things. Timing, that I, I stopped doing it because I just didn't uh, feel I had the time to commit to it and now I felt like I could fit it into it you know and, and keep up with it because you got to be consistent with the thing you know and the other thing was uh, gas uh, digital media Jamie Johnson's company I just really like what they're doing what they're about their their business model uh, the vision for the company, they got an East Coast and a West Coast office, they gave, you know, portable gear. This gave me a, a, a more convenient setup and a, and, a, and a better path, a clearer path, path to success. So, Well, Jamie, uh, who you have worked with a lot recently, sort of is following the old D. Snyder business model, which is not just being a singer, but having a lot of projects going on at once. And I would argue that you were probably the first singer within rock or metal to really do that kind of thing. Uh, where did the idea to be an entrepreneur and not just a singer come from? Well, I'd love to tell you, uh, people like it is that a lot, and uh, and I know people want me to say, well, I you know had a grand vision and it was all part of a master plan, 
And this is the God's honest truth. I woke up one day in the mid-90s, and the money was gone. They found a cure for hair metal called grunge. And literally, I had no career. At married, three kids, no money, and no, pro- no prospects, and no idea where I was going. And at that moment, I said, well, what are you going to do now? You know, and I just desperately started just saying yes and doing anything. It started with a desk job, answering a phone, riding a bicycle to it for a couple hundred bucks a week. It led to a uh, running a studio, local recording studio, which led to working with a, a toy manufacturing company. And meantime, I was working, started to explore radio and voiceover, and then I just started branching out. So I always tell people it was 10% inspiration and 90% desperation. Well, your old manager had told me that you'd once attended a Tony Robbins seminar, and that, in a way, turned things around for you. Or is that a fallacy? It is um, an overstatement. Uh, I did not attend um, a seminar. I did, I did the, the tapes, which is a much more complicated, not complicated, 30 days, 30 tapes, you know, that kind of thing, read his books, uh, and he was a game changer for me. Um, and, and I think... What I developed and learned from Tony, um, the, the expansion, was to not be afraid to make mistakes and to take chances. And I would just got in the habit of just saying yes, which is how I got to do For the Love of Metal, which is how I got on Broadway and Rock of Ages, which is uh, so many other things. I just started saying when people would say, well, would you consider? And I go, yes. They said, I didn't finish the sentence yet. I said, no, but I'll consider it for sure and, uh, and, and figure it out later. I used to be very fearful of, of um, not being, you know, like having to be super prepared for everything and not want to take chances. And from, from Tony, amongst many other things, the guy's brilliant, um, I, I just learned to, say, to take chances and figure it out when I get there. That's what I've been doing. And you're on the recent album by the band Monster Truck. Was that a case where someone said, would you like to do this? And you just immediately said yes? I was in Toronto doing my musical, The Rock and Roll Christmas Tale, another thing that I wrote a musical and staged it. And now I'm in uh, in conversations with uh, a major um, stop-motion animation company about doing a holiday special uh, using using my, my musical for it. But I was in Toronto, and uh, the juice shop down the block, I used to go every morning to see this amazing music playing. And I, I said, who is this band? And the kid got a counter says, Monster Truck. I said, who's that? And they go, they're a new band out of Toronto area, Hamilton, but outside of Toronto. And I, I just got turned on to them and just became a huge fan. And uh, they're one of those bands that, that you know, when you, once you're in the business, it, it's tough to rekindle those feelings you had when you were a kid, where you just got starry-eyed over a band. And it happened to me with Foxy Shazam, Volbeat. Occasionally, it happens. And Monster Truck just lit me up, and I was downloading all the their EPs and their first album, and got T-shirts. I was like, and and one thing different now from when I was a kid is. If I like a band, I can just pick up a phone and call them without too much trouble. And so I just picked the phone and called John Harvey up and said, Hey, dude, D. Snyder, fucking love your band. He's like, the D. Snyder? 
I'm like, yeah, man. And we just became friends, and and that led to them saying, hey, would you do this thing? And I was like, again, hey, would you? Yes. I didn't finish the sentence. Uh, I'm, I'm down. Whatever it is, I'm down. Well, aside from all that, when did you move to Las Vegas? My kids, my grown kids, all and, and one of them has grandchildren, they all moved out to the West Coast pretty much within a few years of each other for career reasons. And um, my wife and I just said, hey, you know, where do we want to be? Where our family is or, you know, here in this big house, you know, waiting for them to come back for Christmas once a year, you know. So uh, we just uh, headed out and as to not be, like, completely on top of them, uh, we, well, we actually live in, in Belize and Vegas. We built a house down on the, on the beach down in Belize. So, um, so we, you know, we're, we're much closer within hours as opposed to several hours. You know, we can, God, my plane worth us 45 minutes, you know. Well, I know you do get back to the island often and you have the upcoming BAB event, but is there anything that you miss about living on Long Island? Let's be clear. That's a complicated D. Snyder event and BAB is the true supporter of my event. I started that 16 years ago uh, with the March of Dimes and I've uh, been doing the, the motorcycle ride for a long time. Um, yeah, I'm back, you know, often enough that it's it's tough to miss like matter of fact I, this month every weekend i'm back uh in the area like this weekend i'm going to well atlantic city but my, um and, you know in my, and my my you know family members and my wife's family lives in staten island so we're seeing everybody so i'm back often enough to never really feel like oh i'm you know i miss it i haven't been there in so long and that's not a phrase you hear happening from my mouth too often beyond that you know honestly I read a statistic once that said that two-thirds of Long Islanders said if not for family and work, they would move. <laughs> it's, it's great, but it's densely populated. And, it's, uh, and, you know, and, uh, and, and the 495 should be listed as a no-outlet road because you know, go 100 miles in, you're going 100 miles back to get out. You know, so it's, it's, um, it's not the best, best thought-out suburban community in the world but uh so I've, I'm, I'm enjoying uh so for me after spending god 60 years there 59 60 years uh, i'm cool i'm fine with just the, the regular visit is there a restaurant though when you come back to long island that you go i've got to go there for the trip to feel complete oh yeah yeah pasta pasta in uh in um it's it's in port jefferson it's uh, my wife's my favorite restaurant on, uh, on Long Island. And Maureen's Kitchen, uh, which is a breakfast place, which is like, you know, between the two of them, we got, we got to hit both those places. As somebody who's been following your career for decades, of course, I've seen you not only conquer the rock world, the radio world, uh, besides the play that you mentioned, uh, the, the two plays that you did on Broadway and Van Helsing's Curse, et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything that you haven't yet done that you're still hoping to? You know, I, I say no, and then something happens, like a call I got a couple of years ago. Hey, what do you think about doing an animated kids show? And I'm like, you know, a cool animated kids show with cool music. I was like, all right. <laughs> and my, I hung up, my wife said, you want to do an animated kids show? I've never thought about it before, but um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tony Robbins said that uh, everybody has opportunities. It's just people don't either notice them or take the chance and go through the door. 
So I've, that's part of the saying, yes. I was like, I don't know, I never thought about it before, but I raised four kids, and, uh, and uh, I've now got four grandkids, and I've sat plenty of, had plenty of miserable half hour watching horrible children's shows, so I'd like to give it a shot. And me and producer Michael Alden, um, Broadway producer Michael Alden, we, we created, along with Titmouse uh, Animation, um, a children's show. I can't tell you more about it, but we sold it to um, Netflix, and it's in development right now over at Netflix. So the reason I said that is I think, like, eh, you know, no, I've, I've pretty much done it all, and then something happens. Like Jamie Josta says, I challenge you to do a contemporary metal album. And I go, all right, let's do that. So I never know if anybody will get asked to by Elon Musk to be the first uh, heavy metal head in space. So I don't know what opportunities are going to come my way. So finally, do any last words for the kids? Well, you know, I mean, the for love of metal is just um, a godsend for me. And um, it's something I wouldn't have dared to even contemplated doing a contemporary metal record uh if and and uh, and i thank jamie josta and all the people who worked on it for you know for encouraging me pushing me and guiding me to an amazing place in my life i mean i'm you know the album entered the billboard charts at number 20 it's been the number one metal record in the united states for the, since it came out it's one of the top metal records in the world right now and it's re it's connected me with a whole new younger metal audience and and reestablished me as um, a premier metal artist. So um, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't would I've hoped for it. I would have. I put it this way. I loved that it's happening, but I but I just didn't don't think there was a place for me. So um, if you haven't checked out for the love of metal, because you think, oh well, I know what D. Snyder does. Uh, you need to check out the love of metal. If you love metal, you got to check it out because looking at Spotify, it's 18 to 58. Everybody is just falling in love with my new record and with and they're falling in love with Dee Snyder again. Last but not least, our highlights from my chat with comedian, author, producer, etc. Greg Barron, a funny, talented, motivated guy that probably will inspire you. I've been following your career probably 15, 20 years, and it really always cracked me up how you were this punk rock guy, yet you had your moment where, you know, you were kind of a mainstream advice giver to the masses. But it seems like you finally found your peace and your path. Um, is that something that you've realized as well? Wow, that's a really good question. Yes, um, a- absolutely. Uh, I think, um, you know, when you start out doing anything, you're trying to create an identity uh, based on, I believe, who it is you think you are or, or who it is you'd like to be or have the, the, the way you'd like the world to perceive you. And some of it is true and some of it is, you know, um, artifice because we're all just ultimately people. Um, but then your career, if you're genuine, goes in a direction that, it, it, that makes sense to it. Um, and um, uh, it doesn't see the delineation between, you know, you liking uh, Black Flag and... Uh, telling women they shouldn't go out with guys that don't like them. Uh, It's all part of the same uh, deal. But um, uh, coming out of that experience, I was, um, I couldn't see the way to draw it all together. And just by virtue of that, uh, that made it difficult. It, It really was around my way of thinking. 
part of me laughing at your pain a little bit, but I loved the Comedy Central special, or at least the TV special, where you had your band behind you on stage, yet you were kind of, you know, talking to housewives. And in that same era, you know, you had your album cover that was a tribute to London Calling. Did you have, you know, the people around you kind of pushing you away from being yourself? No, I just think that they saw an opportunity that, you know, that what's interesting now, um, this is pre-internet. And I think, you know, there were so few channels that you could go through that you needed to be clear about who you were to people. Like when I was on Oprah, they're like, look, you got to take your earrings off. Now that could have just been a good piece of life advice at that point. And also maybe not look like the singer from the offspring, but, but you know, um, the message they, you know, what the guy said is, look, you don't want to obscure your message there. You know, these women are not going to understand. They're not going to care about this thing that really, you know, uh, it could be jarring for them. And I don't want you to get in the way of that message. And while the other thing was the book I wrote with somebody else. So I was, you know, ostensibly going to work for the both of us. Um, and, um, uh, so the, anytime anyone, uh, suggested that I do something, it was just simply to, um, you know, continue this thing that I was doing. It didn't feel like they're asking me to compromise who I was. People who knew me close felt like, well, it seems like it's all the same guy, dude. Your uh, new comedy album coming out soon, Why Are You In Here, is not your first collaboration with Audible. Um, did you know along that this was going to be a comedy album and not a book? Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely, I wanted to put out, a, I wanted to put out a record. I just have been, it's been a while since I put something out and I really wanted to um, let people know that I'm still out doing stand-up and, um, and love doing it. So you started off as a comedian and then became an author and a talk show host and, you know, an author, which is kind of separate from being a writer in a way. Do you have a way that you like being described? Because I know you also had the reigning monarchs. Um, yeah, it's funny. It depends on what form I'm filling out, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think I like being known as a comedian, I think, first, because I think everything stems from there. You know, my, my desire to make people laugh is a, is a, you know, is a way to get to know people and to, and my way of communicating. So whatever the message is, hopefully it's, there's a, a sense of humor around it. So yeah. So comedian usually is the way I like to be defined. Um, because I, because I'm not a rock star and the rock star, you're, it's evident that that's what you are, you know? Um, and author, I feel like everyone's writing books these days. So I don't know, you know, um, it's a, that's a harder field to be seen as an author in, I think. Well, I also did mention the podcaster because I know that you launched a walk in the room with Dave Anthony. And also you've been prolific in terms of being a guest on other people's podcasts. But what I wanted to get at also is with all these projects that you have going on, I'd imagine that not all of your fans on each of these projects is aware of everything you do. No, most of, I don't think my family's aware of everything I do. I mean, one of my greatest joys at this moment is that I do a one minute candy review in my addict on Instagram called lonely ghost addict, stay at home candy review. Uh, what really it's not so much I'm reviewing candy, but shouting at ba shouting, uh, at, uh, at the candy corporations for their greed. Um, it's just bizarre. Um, but, uh, I find, uh, the way the world operates now is, um, you know, what, is, what content do you have? What would you like to do? You know, there, I think it's hard to just be one thing. Uh, and lucky are those that get to be Bill Burr or, um, 
you know, uh, anybody who can sort of just find this one area to occupy. When you're writing just material in general, do you know outright this is for a book or this is for me as a comedian or this is me for an Instagram post? <laughs> well, it's funny. For comedy, it usually, I'll have an experience and I'll jot it down on a piece of paper. I'll just put it in my notes on my phone. You know, I'll have a, you know, something will happen with one of the girls and I'll write that down. And I'm the, that's definitely meant for stand-up. Um, I, when I write, um, I usually write in the mornings and it's usually after, you know, um, uh, either meditation or riding a bike and I'll, it'll, it'll be whatever comes to me. You know, sometimes it'll be a piece of fiction. Sometimes it'll be a thought about relationships. Sometimes it'll be, um, you know, something I'm thinking about in terms of uh, the way, uh, Reese's just seems to put their candy inside of their candy and never really make anything new, but they've just got a million products. And I find that greedy and distasteful. There's no reason to put the pieces inside of the cup. It's incestuous. I don't care for it. Well, which uh, candy companies do you think are doing it right if Reese's isn't? Cadbury and Lint. <laughs> you know, um, I think, um, I think some of the, um, I think some of the gum candy, uh, uh, you know, the, certainly those um, Haribo people do a good job. Um, but it's because they, uh, don't expand so far outside of the box, you know? I mean, look, no one's going to argue with, I'm sure Reese's is doing just fine without my opinion. But when I look at it, I feel uh, uh, there's a cynicism in the fact that you've just taken one piece of candy. It seems like that you scraped the pickings off, of the, off the floor and put it inside the other one, and now you're telling me this is special. Um, and also, who, who's, who, who goes to the pitch meeting and goes, dude, just tell them to put the one thing into the other one. It, it worked for me. Well, when you go to other countries, do you make it a part of your journey, an essential part, to try the different brands over there? And I say that because Kit Kat is made by a different company here than it is in you know other countries in Asia or Europe. Right. I do. I love what the Japanese do with the Kit Kat. I mean, they they come in green tea and melon, and they um, they get real excited about the, their marketing. I uh, like the way that they package things. Um, yeah. So, oh, absolutely. I definitely do. Definitely do. Well, I was going to ask you about the reigning monarchs. What's the status of the band at the moment? Well, I'll tell you, man. Uh, uh, we have an album that has been, I think it's been sitting around now for two years. And the reason is, is that one of the guys like, we should do like a podcast and then put the record out. And that just stopped it dead in its tracks because uh, I, well, we're going to do a one-off. Like, it, <laughs> you know, when you work with a group of people, uh, and one of the things I've found as I got older in life, the more you can do on your own, the better off you are in terms of like your skill set. Like I would say to anybody getting into show business, learn how to shoot a camera, learn how to edit, learn how to, um, uh, you know, do a handful of things yourself because some days you're going to want to work on something and then you're going to want it to be finished. Uh, and we played once last year, but Mike, who's the um, uh, other guitar player, uh, has been busy getting a degree so that he can teach music and uh, Blair plays with other bands. So it's hard to get it all together, but I still love doing it. That makes a lot of sense. And speaking of working, you know, you're one of the few people that's able to work with their wife in a successful way. Uh, have you picked up any tidbits along the way that you can share with other people as to how to make that work? Just make sure you don't do it at the expense of your relationship. What, you know, I think some days I wish that we didn't work together because, um, uh, you know, it, it can be, it, that's one of the hardest things you'll do. Uh, especially if it's creative, because um, ultimately the person you married is different than you, I think. And so that means that you approach things differently. And that means that they don't always think you're hilarious. And then your feelings get hurt. And you don't want to write for a month. Uh, that might be just me. But um, um, 
just remember they're you're just remember who they are when you're writing with them. Just remember what they mean to you. That's it. And and remember that that is more important than whatever it is you're doing together. I promise you. And I read that you have a new book coming out in 2019. Is that also being written with your wife? Yes, that is part two of the first book was uh, in this series is How to Keep Your Marriage from Sucking. And the second one is We Used to Be in Love and Now We Work Here. And is that going to be an audio book and a traditional print book? Yes. Yes, hopefully it will. It's funny because that changes all the time. You know, uh, one one point we're like, no, we're just doing digital. Then the next thing you know, I'm like, oh, we're putting out hard copies. So um, we, we'll see. Wherever people buy books, I, you know, it's hard to... You know, it's funny. Someone's like, "You're gonna put? Are you putting out an album? Are you gonna put it out on that? Like, you're gonna put out vinyl?" And I was like, "No, because I don't want a thousand vinyl records in my garage with my CDs that are already out there, and you know, and the many other things that people decided. Well, maybe I just get it online. You know, I love the online part of it all. Ultimately, is there a project that I didn't ask about? Because it seems like you have six or seven different, you know, spinning plates going on in the air. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I do a, I do a um, uh, whenever we get a chance to podcast called Rock Out with Your Doc Out, which is with my friend Kay Hanley of Letters to Cleo, and we talk about rock documentaries. That's it. I'm trying to, um, I, you know, the interesting thing is for the last two years, uh, when I get up in the morning, I, I, what started out to be a, a writing exercise has been two years of writing fiction, short stories. And so I'm trying to figure out what to do with all of those because they're absolutely bizarre and interesting and probably the closest to the way my brain actually works, which is not too dissimilar to when I was uh, on the podcast, walking the room. Right on. So I guess in closing, any last words for the kids? Yeah. Do the thing that you're thinking about doing and don't worry about where it's supposed to go. It will find itself. I really have found if you keep your head down in your ideas, no matter how strange they are, and you just stick with it, people will get it eventually. And our biggest problem is we're always being told to set goals and look ahead and all that stuff. And while I think that's an okay thing to have those things in the back of your mind, it's sort of where you'd like to be. The work will ultimately get you there. And when people see you working, they will respond to it. Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, Have a great Shabbos.